Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning. The warning you are about to hear will probably not deter you in the slightest. In fact, it will probably make you even more eager to hear the story. Warning. This week's Drabblecast dabbles in the genre of erotica. If you're a prude, you might become any combination of flummoxed, crestfallen, and hot and bothered. But like I said, you'll still listen. Because, let's be honest, deep down inside, you really love being flummoxed. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 117. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, we're bringing back the Nigerian Scam Spam Contest. I told you kids there were boobies in this episode. Get out! I don't care how much you like Nigerians. You heard me. That's right. The high art of writing in the literary form known as Nigerian Scam Spam is something that we take very seriously here at the Drabblecast. That's why we're upping the ante this year with an actual cash prize for first place, which the winner can find in trust of my beloved and departed wife, Marjorie Buffington III. Her bank account, which is held overseas at the moment, is in need of your assistance. In order to retrieve the funds, we must have your... (laughs) I'm just playing. The winner this year not only gets their bit of Nigerian scam spam prose spammed out through all participants' email lists, they also get 100 smackers. That's $100, American, not Nigerian cash. That's right, we're that serious about getting good Nigerian scam spam stories sent in this year. For those of you new to the Drabblecast who are scratching your head, you'll find the complete Nigerian scam spam guidelines on our discussion forums at www.drabblecast.org. Nigerian scam spam, as 300 words or under, makes use of strategic errors in syntax, spelling, and punctuation, tries to subversively get money or something else from you by some bizarre plan, and because this is Drabblecast scam spam, it's got to be creative as hell. The idea here is, of course, not to make money when we spam the winner out, or even to annoy people. It's really to confuse them, and possibly even entertain them. Last year we had wizards, aliens, clones, all sorts of constituents represented trying to hustle and con. It was good times. Here are some examples from last year. From Karma Pirate. Hello, me. I am risking a lot to send this message right now, so please excuse my brevity. In the future, you become wealthy, partly because of this message. There is a man in Nigeria finalizing his research in trans-temporal data transmission. By the time you read this, his project is in dire need of funding. You must transfer the funds of your account, yes, all of it, to his offshore account. I know how much you have, but you will get by without it for now. This man will later credit you with co-founding the technology, and the two of you will become exceptionally wealthy. 
You must make the deposit next Wednesday. Then send this exact message to yourself using the technology you helped created. You will know when to send the message. See you in the mirror. Your friend. Me. You. P.S. Beware March 15th. And from listener Adam. Kindest attention. Greetings of New Year and much fertility to your wives. My name is Farouk Ambimbola. As I am sure a wise sir such as yourself is aware, the economy of Nigeria is based entirely on the exports of cocoa, 3%, footwear, 2%, and email fraud, 95%, to the United States. In last year, however, the citizens of your country have neglected to partake in our most generous offers for free wealth. As a result of this most unfortuitous decrease in cyber investment, we find ourselves in a national depression of sort. Therefore, I have set in motion plans to move to America, where I myself may capitalize on the bounty of profitable Nigerian email opportunities which your people so carelessly filter as junk mail. However, in order that I might partake of these generous, risk-free offers, I must first transfer my life savings to the account of a U.S. citizen. If you would please send me your bank account information, most kind and prudent sir, I will promptly make deposit of one million dollars. You may keep this money, of course, as I will immediately make it back by accepting the riches of all my countrymen who are in dire need of give theirs away. Nigeria needs Farouk, you see, and Farouk needs you. A pleasure is doing business with you. Yours, and most sincerely, Farouk Ambimbola. You get the point. So, this year we're handling submissions a little different. Last year we accepted submissions via the section in our discussion forums and via email. This year we're only accepting them via email. We'll post the entries on the forum as well, but if you want your Nigerian scam spam considered for the contest, you got to send it in to Drabblecast at yahoo.com with the title Nigerian Scam Spam Submission. The reason for this? Well, we want your email addresses. We want the winning story to make its way far and wide this year via email, so we hope people wanting to participate will spread the winning story around to all their email contacts. This contest is going on for the month of June. Submissions will be open until June 24th. Then, the winner will be announced on July 1st. You'll be able to see submissions on our discussion forums in a section called Second Annual Nigerian Scam Spam Contest. Happy scamming! So, this week's show is about aliens. First, we bring you a hundred-word Drabble story by Brett Reynolds called The Entertainer. Brett lives in Weedsport, New York, with his significant other, two cats, three dogs, and three goats. He's had several Drabbles published by Sam's Dot Publishing, including this one, which appeared in Drabbler number 13. I try to act like I'm enjoying this. These screeching little humans assault my senses, but this is how I earn my living. I try to use my skills to captivate them, utilizing every trick in the book to stack the cards in my favor. I read their minds, attempting to mesmerize them with dazzling sleight of hand, but I struggle with alien fingers. My efforts fail, and they lose interest, turning their attention to cake and ice cream. 
Returning from the birthday party, my Martian costume hits the floor. I grab a beer and sink slowly into the couch. Our feature story this week is The Curse of the Alien's Wife by Bruce Boston. Bruce is the author of more than 40 books and chapbooks. His work has appeared in hundreds of publications, including The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror and The Nebula Award Showcase. His 2007 novel, The Gardener's Tale, was a Bram Stoker Award finalist. For more info on The Gardener's Tale and other works by Bruce, check out www.bruceboston.com. This story first appeared in Iutu, December 1991. So, without further ado, Curse of the Alien's Wife by Bruce Boston. He has become the darkest star of her erotic obsessions, the critical mass beyond which her personality can no longer ascend or even express itself. Whenever she considers leaving, he launches the precise sensual bullet that slaughters her resolve and elevates her consciousness to new heights of excitation. He is an incendiary of the flesh who ignites her neural corridors with undivided passion. At first, she is ashamed of the incoherent cries that rise so freely from her throat at how her limbs thrash beneath the artful invasions of his touch, yet she soon learns to embrace her abandon, to find a sure purchase on his slippery flanks, to revel in the fluid guttural oh-so-foreign purr of his elaborate and fiercely whispered endearments. And now that his supernal caress has become the familiar sanctum of her nights, she fears that no mere human partner could ever satisfy her again. All of his kind, so he tells her, are masters at the art of love, both somatic and sublime. Or is it nothing more than sex, she wonders? Has he transformed her into a nymphomaniac, a nymphozenomaniac? She laughs to herself, for she knows if she laughs aloud, he will hound her unmercifully until he knows the reason why. In the darkness of the anonymous motel rooms they occupy in a seemingly unending chain, a pale lime radiance leaks from the corners of his eyes. Other than that, he can pass easily enough for human. Large and well-built, the planes of his face perhaps a trifle too flat and sharply angled, the green of his eyes an odd shade, rife with the stuff of dreams, even by daylight. Yet, at first or second glance, one would never suspect the star-flung distance of his origins. It is not his appearance, no gross physical anomaly, that threatens to betray him. Rather, it is his curiosity and naivete regarding the human condition his inability to leave the slightest need or suffering unattended. Even in the midst of their headlong flight from one assumed identity to the next, he forces her to stop the car for hitchhikers. He tips extravagantly at run-down coffee shops and squanders the pittance she earns at temp jobs or waitressing on every homeless soul he encounters in the street. 
Although he speaks the language with no trace of an accent, the idea of him holding a job is more absurd than the thought of leaving him. She must manage all of the particulars of their life, financial and otherwise. No matter how often she instructs him in the proper behavior, his personality resembles that of some gentle, intense, madman, a cross between Quixote and Van Gogh. Matters of ordinary survival on the planet Earth, the give and take of daily hypocrisy, are beyond his grasp. In contrast, his performance each night grows more accomplished and bizarre as he masters the limits of her flesh, as he plumbs the depths of her psyche and devastates her final inhibitions. And each night she continues to learn from him, buoyed by the vague promise that someday her sensual repertoire could equal his own and she might return in kind a portion of the ecstasy he dispenses so freely. She knows if he is discovered for what he is, she will lose him to a media hungry for sensation, or to some acronomic government agency with an even greater appetite for secrecy. In one nightmare scenario that spools across her imagination, she sees him stretched upon a laboratory table, gladly assisting a team of scientists in his own dissection. In another reel, he has become a darling of the talk show circuit, his sexual prowess already legend, a line of long-stemmed starlets clinging to his arms. So at her direction, they flee from one city to another, one underculture to the next, where his eccentricities are no less noticeable, but more readily accepted until even among the social misfits who become their circle of friends, he begins to draw curious stares and questions. And then, she decides, they must move on again. To her own friends and relatives, she has become a stranger, or at least persona non grata. In increasing numbers, they refuse to accept her collect calls or respond to her pleas for cash. When her car breaks down, unable to afford the repairs, she must sell it at a fraction of its worth so they can continue their haphazard flight and happenstance existence. Only her mother continues to speak to her, and then it is no longer in the voice she knows as that of her mother. It has become reproachful and strident, any shred of motherly tenderness lost in the bitterness engendered by what the old woman considers a filial betrayal. If I could prove what I know, she screeches across the wires. If anyone would listen to me, I'd send the police after you right this minute, you and that thing you call a man. She is past the point of hope or redemption, resigned to her addiction. She has already accepted a life of flight and poverty, punctuated by interludes of blinding passion, when the tiny rescue beacon that never leaves his side begins to pulse with a radiance that mirrors the pale green fire of his eyes. They must dash more than halfway across the continent to rendezvous at the designated coordinates. First by bus, next by thumb, as their funds are depleted. Finally, leaving the highway and civilization behind, they travel by foot, in an exhausting trek through the desolation and chill of a desert night. His eyes flare, brighter than before, 
lighting their way like ghostly headlamps. He has at last taken command of their fate and no longer seems the least bit helpless. Without compass or map, guided by some inner sense of direction akin to the migratory savvy of birds or dolphins, he strides forward as surely as if their path were marked. In the eerie illumination that he casts, the cacti and desert rocks take on the shifting dimensions of a fluid, otherworldly landscape. When she stumbles, reaching out to him for support, she is startled anew by the wrongness of the bones and muscles beneath his flesh. Waking near the end of night, about to experience the last earthly dawn she will ever know, she finds herself huddled within his arms for warmth rather than pleasure. As the sky bleaches and the stars begin to fade, a single star among them grows brighter. The sand beneath their feet trembles in subsonic vibrations as the craft silently descends. Looking to her lover's face, she sees the exertions of the night have bled the color from his eyes. They are like curdled milk, the green fled to the corners of the iris. Yet, it is not their lack of color that causes the breath to catch in her throat, so much as their expression. His eyes now watch her and look away with a glance he has henceforth reserved for beggars in the street. All at once she understands that their roles will soon be reversed. She will become the alien, inept and unable to comprehend the simplest conventions of a strange new existence. She begins to wonder if the media, the government, and the scientists of his world are as hungry for novelty as those of her own. She realizes that this is the first night they've spent together without making love. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. I did warn you that it might make you crestfallen. Hope that's okay. Let's catch up on some story feedback from a couple weeks ago. When we did Drabblecast 117, Charlie the Purple Giraffe was acting strangely by David D. Levine. This one got mixed reviews, which I thought was weird because I love the story. Norval Joe said, The story was well written and beautifully presented, but boring. I was only drawn into it for the last few minutes. It was like a Sunday morning comic strip made into a movie. But then, I didn't like who shot Roger Rabbit either. Phenopath, the winner of this week's TwitFic contest, by the way, congrats, said, I did not like this story as much as I expected from the bizarro setup at the beginning, although I did get a kick out of the manic narration by David and Norm. It played out a little predictably. I think I was also distracted by the thought that I never found comic books funny as a kid. I vaguely recall reading Garfield, etc., without cracking a smile. Am I weird, or are kids' comic books just not funny? Actually, you are pretty weird, Phenopath. But don't worry, kids' comic books were lame. Except for Calvin and Hobbes. Sasha said, Wow! Win, win, win! I absolutely love this story. My favorite DC production so far, with Jelly Park as a close second. Like Charlie the Purple Giraffe, I too think that laughing is the most important thing to do in life. Seriously, it's important. Laugh and make fun. We have to keep the readers interested. Indeed we do, Sasha. And we have to keep the listeners interested, too. 
Tell us what you like about the show, or what we can do better. Comment on stories and exchange weird stories and news with other fans in our discussion forums. We're just one big happy family. If you'd like to help the Drabblecast out, you can write a review about us on iTunes, or wherever you subscribe, and you can blog about us, or you can donate to us to help us pay authors for their work. You'll find a few ways to do so on our main page at www.drabblecast.org. Well, that's it for this week. We'll see you next Wednesday. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it, but you can make sweet love to it all night. Or you can just share it with your friends. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to give up and have a beer. Kids these days just want to eat ice cream. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it <laughs> eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.